This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Consciousness Without Form, recorded January 26, 1992, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. In all mystical traditions, God or Brahman or Tao or whatever the name for the ultimate is, is conceived in two complementary ways as transcendent and as immanent. These two terms refer to two aspects of the ultimate. One aspect being that it transcends all forms, all things, all worlds, all selves, all people, anything you can imagine, consciousness transcends that. And the other, the eminent aspect, applies to the fact that consciousness also somehow permeates all things, is the substance of all things contains all things. St. Augustine had a nice image of this. He said, the world is like a sponge and God is like the sea. And as the sponge is in the sea and completely permeated by the sea, that's how God is to the world in that eminent aspect. You could think of it this way, that although consciousness permeates and contains all things, if you took away all things, you would still have a somewhat left. And that's the transcendent aspect of consciousness. Now, when we talk about these two aspects, the transcendent and eminent aspects of the divine, of the absolute, we tend to set up a duality. And in point of fact, you'll find uh, theological debates, whether God is transcendent or eminent, and a lot of confusion arises, particularly in exoteric traditions. And a lot of false ideas arise. There's always this threat in exoteric religion that these ideas degenerate into a dualism which rejects one side or the other. So this was a common heresy in Christianity, this dualism, where the focus is entirely on the transcendent God and so the world becomes a place of evil, the domain of the devil and whatnot. And to the Catholic Church's credit, they always fought this. It doesn't mean that it didn't always, in some sense, permeate lower understandings of Christianity. The other aspect, though, is the tendency to think of uh, God as purely eminent. And this is perhaps our great heresy today. I'm thinking of New Age circles and so forth. We tend to think of God as uh, being somehow equivalent to nature, some sort of force in nature. And so we can see or feel or experience that God is in the trees and the stars and the sky and the earth and sea and whatnot. But it degenerates into a kind of nature worship. The idea that God is only eminent is the idea that if you took the sum of everything that exists, that is God. And there's no idea that God is beyond any of that. And this leads to a fixation on forms and a desperation in relation to form. That this world and the world of form becomes, since that's the only God there is, becomes the paramount thing. There's no recognition of a, another aspect to God. So it's better that we think of the transcendent and eminent aspects of God as a polar relationship. In fact, it's often depicted as a kind of triangle. 
And if you picture a triangle in your mind, and you picture the base as the manifest world, and the apex as the transcendent God, it's symbolized by this point, this dimensionless point. It gives you a crude way of relating these two ideas. They aren't ultimately paradoxical. They only seem to be paradoxical. You can't have the point here. Uh, you could have the point without the triangle, but you can't have the triangle without the point, the apex. Or a circle in its center would be another way of looking at it. Or you can't have a circumference without a center. In fact, once you define a circumference, you automatically define a point center. But without a circumference, you can still have a point, any point, anywhere. The point can't be located now any place, because it's only located as a center in relation to the circumference. You begin to uh, see what Nicholas of Cusa, another great Christian mystic, talked about when he said that God was a circle whose circumference is nowhere and whose center is everywhere. So let's not fall into the temptation to think of these as dualistic, even though it's hard for our intellectual minds to put them together. One of the most famous expressions of this is given in Hinduism by the mantra Om. <clears throat> Om is usually spelled in English O-M. If you translated the Hindu letters, it has three letters, and they're usually translated in English A-U-M, indicating that in the Sanskrit there are three letters. And the sound Om and the three letters of Om stand for this hierarchy. The A stands for the manifest world, the world we experience in our waking life the world of seemingly solid objects and people and things and so forth. The letter U stands for the subtle realm. And it's associated in Hinduism with the realm of dreams. When you go to sleep, another world appears, not completely divorced in this world, but quite a bit different in its quality. It doesn't have the same solidity. It doesn't have the same deterministic character. And then the M stands for that transcendent aspect, which is equated in Hinduism with dreamless sleep, where no objects arise in consciousness. Consciousness has no content. Now, this is interesting because here we are relating this idea to our own personal everyday experience. In other words, everybody goes through a cycle in a normal 24-hour day of experiencing these three realms. You experience the gross realm of waking life, the subtle realm of dream, and, whether you know it or not, the profound transcendent realm of dreamless sleep. On a spiritual path, one of the things that we do is use the gross realm and then the subtle realm as a ladder to the transcendent. This is a very ancient image, it goes back to shamanism, this idea that heaven and earth are connected by a rope or a ladder. And the shaman climbs the rope or ladder to 
return to the heaven which was the original paradise from which everything fell. This image is picked up and used in all the later mystical traditions. One of the most eloquent uses of it is by St. Bonaventure, who has a little work called The Soul's Journey to God, which I highly recommend to anybody. We have it in the library, both as a separate pamphlet and as a part of a larger work of Bonaventure's. And he compares this journey to climbing a ladder. And so we see the importance of the world, the significance of the world. If you kick away the ladder, you have no way to return to the transcendent. And yet, if you start climbing the ladder and you're not willing to go upwards, you are stuck in this world. The ladder is not something to become attached to and to hold on to. It's something to be used. And on a spiritual journey, if we want to use this image, in climbing this ladder, what the seeker starts to see is the transparency of the forms of the gross and subtle realms. That the light of the divine starts to shine through. The most familiar expression of this is beauty. If you go out and look at a beautiful sunset, you are seeing the light of the divine shining through form. And this is common on a spiritual path. Very often, however, we get entranced with the light reflected through these forms. And we still mistake the forms themselves for that transcendent apex, that transcendent pole. And as much as your life can be enriched on a spiritual path by being able to see through the nature of form, to see its transparency to the divine, by being able to experience that the world is, in fact, divine. If we do not climb the ladder all the way, you cannot find that truth which Jesus described as the truth that sets you free, ultimately. So it's necessary to travel all the way to that transcendent pole. Now, what can we say about this transcendent pole? How do we know where we're going? I want to read you some quotes from these traditions. And I think you'll see that there's this universal agreement among mystics about what cannot be described, if you like. Here's Shankara, great Hindu mystic. Brahman is indefinable, beyond the range of mind and speech. Brahman is without parts or attributes. It is subtle, absolute, taintless, one without a second. Now, notice that there's this heavy emphasis on the negative. Without parts, without attributes. There's one expression here of something that the mind can perhaps grab onto, this idea of one without a second. That's a paradox. The minute you say one, you have many, or the possibility of many. So he's given us a little something to grab onto, which isn't quite true. Even to say one without a second is going too far, really. But at least it gives your mind something to feed on. What is one without a second? Our lives are full of a sense of one and other, self and world. 
subject and objects. What he's saying is, truly speaking, there is only one. Now, you can start to try to see this in a very concrete, practical sense. If there is only one, why do I experience these glasses as different from this gong? He's saying, literally, there aren't two things here. There's only one. And that one is Brahman. Why do I experience myself as other than Paul? <coughs> there's only Brahman here. There's no other. There's no second. There's nothing outside. So the teaching leads us and guards us against getting stuck somewhere along the line, saying, oh, well, I can see that that gong is so beautiful. This is the light of God shining through the gong, but I still see it as a gong, as something other than God or Brahman. Then I haven't arrived at the end. Here's a description from Nargajuna of Prajnaparamita. Prajnaparamita means the ultimate wisdom. Prajna means wisdom, Paramita is the ultimate. It cannot be seized either as existent or non-existent, either as permanent or impermanent, either as unreal or as real. This is Prajna Paramita. It is not anything composite or incomposite. It is neither seizing nor abandoning, neither rising nor perishing, it is beyond the four kotas of is and is not. Getting at it, one does not find in it anything that can be clung to. Here's another expression of this absolute that's beyond any attributes, any thingness. And there's a, another clue here for us very specifically. It cannot be seized. It cannot be clung to. If you have any idea of God that you're clinging to, it ain't God. If you have any uh, experience that then you're trying to recreate, because it was a marvelous experience, it might have been a marvelous experience. It might have been a profound spiritual experience. But if you're trying to get it back, to cling to it, to hold on to it, it ain't God. It's a teaching that turns us back to examine our own attachments. We would like to hang on to God. We could grab on to God and just hold on to God and God would protect us. It's a useful idea along the way. It's a little bit like uh, giving someone a lifesaver, throwing out a lifesaver in the middle of the ocean. They have something to cling to. But the point is not to spend the rest of your life in an ocean clinging to a lifesaver. It's a temporary expedient. Here's a description from Kabbalism. The ultimate in Kabbalism is called Ensof, without end. The hidden God, the innermost being of divinity, so to speak, has neither qualities nor attributes. The divine being cannot be expressed. All that can be expressed are his symbols. And of course, the world is the symbol for the divine being. 
and the things of the world are the symbols of God. The world is significant and meaningful precisely because it's all a symbol of the divine. If there is no transcendent divine, then the world is meaningless. It doesn't stand for anything. Its meaning derives from its relation to the absolute. So again, he says the same thing that Chakra says. The absolute has no attributes. There's nothing you can hang on to there. Nothing you can get your, your teeth around. Or more pertinently, perhaps, your mind around. Because it's the mind that always wants to get around things. Cling to them, hang on to them. And yet there's a clue. This world is all a symbol. Everything you see is a symbol. There's a potential window to that light. Here's Dionysius, a Christian mystic. We therefore maintain that the universal and transcendent cause of all things is neither a body, nor has he form or shape, quality, quantity, or weight, nor has he any localized, visible, or tangible existence. None of these things can be either identified with or attributed to him. Again, ascending yet higher, we maintain that he is neither soul nor intellect, nor can he be expressed or conceived, since he is neither number nor order, nor greatness nor smallness, nor equality nor inequality, nor similarity nor dissimilarity, nor is he science nor truth, nor kingship nor wisdom, nor can any affirmation or negation be applied to him, insomuch as the all-perfect and unique cause of all things transcends all affirmation, and the simple preeminence of his absolute nature is outside of every negation, free from every limitation, and beyond them all. Notice that in this description, and in Nargajuna's, the ultimate transcends all the opposites. Again, he points to this tendency of our minds to conceive, to create an image. And if you remember this teaching, when you get some very subtle, profound idea of God and you pat yourself on the back and say, ah, now I understand. Remember, no, it cannot be conceived. You will find in your own experience that whatever conceptions or ideas or insights you have will fade. Whenever you think you found God and you say, alas, aha, I found God, and then weeks or months or years later, it'll fade and pass. And you'll say, what happened? It'll all evaporate. Whatever experiences you have, the same thing. Whatever will pass, whatever was a thing, whatever you can hang on to or identify or stands out or apart, just remember, that ain't it. It may be very useful on the spiritual path. A rung in the ladder. But don't stop there. Here's uh, Abina Rabi. He's talking about the absolute. Its reality cannot be conceived. It is God. The utmost knowledge we can have regarding him is the negative qualities, such as there is nothing like him, or your honored Lord is free from the qualities which they attribute to him. 
It is not permissible to speak with reference to God as to what he is, for he has no whatness nor howness. We fear for him who thinks about God through semblance or comparison, for he is uncomprehensible and unbounded and does not come under any definition or quality. Aren't they all saying the same thing? We started with a Hindu <clears throat> and a Buddhist who were traditionally uh, at odds with Hindus. We moved to uh, Judaism, the Kabbalists, who were historically at odds with Christians. We moved to Christians. And then the Sufis did a circuit of the known world at the time. They all agree. How do they know this? Where does it come from? They didn't read each other's works. How do they know this? If God can't be thought about, can't be conceived, and if God can't be experienced in the sense of an experience as a limited passing phenomena, then this truth that sets you free must not be a truth of thought or experience. It must be something else. And every one of these traditions has a word for that. Janana in Hinduism, that knowledge that liberates. In Buddhism, Prajna, the Prajna Paramita that I just read you about, refers to that wisdom. In Kabbalism, it's Devakuth. It means union, when there's no separation. And the idea of Devakuth isn't an experience, it's constantly being united with God. If God moves to the right, you move to the right. If God moves to the left, you move to the left. Without any lag, without any distinction. In Christianity, mystical union, as <coughs> Teresa of Avila talks about. And she puts it uh, just in terms of the apex of this hierarchy here, this ladder. She describes in interior castles all sorts of uh, subtle realm experiences that will happen to you on the way. She's a very, very astute observer of the spiritual path. Visions and insights and whatnot. And then she says, finally, there comes something that cannot be described. The best I can do is just call it union. And she says, even that's saying too much. She can't say anything more about it. All these traditions have some word. The word that I use is gnosis. It's an old Greek word, which, by the way, is related etymologically to janana and prajna. It's the same root. What is gnosis? What could we say here about gnosis? Gnosis is not a kind of knowledge that we conceive of as being between a subject and an object. When we say, I know something, we usually mean we know a something. We know an idea or we know an experience. If you've been to Paris, you say, oh, I know Paris well. That doesn't have to do with ideas. It has to do with your experience. You had a lot of experience of Paris. But all these things that we know come and go. They are impermanent. Most of you have 
probably studied something like chemistry in school and forgotten all about it. All the things you used to know just going right out of your head. And there are places you've been and people you've seen and so forth you've forgotten about. So this is not a knowledge about anything. Now, this gives us a clue here. Where would you find this gnosis, or where would be an opportunity to realize this? In that state in which no contents of consciousness appear. For instance, in dreamless sleep. Our trouble is, we go to sleep at night, and we seem to blank out. We remember our dreams sometimes, and sometimes we're even aware, as we're dreaming, that there is uh, contents of consciousness. Sometimes we're aware that we are dreaming. But when we wake up, we don't have any memory of dreamless sleep, because there was nothing there to remember. We think that we went unconscious. That's the way we describe it. Well, I was out. I was unconscious. It's not true. It's because we are identified with a subject that only exists in relation to objects that we have this pseudo-experience of blanking out. Because in dreamless sleep, there are no objects arise, there's no definable subject. Now, one uh, way a spiritual path operates is to try to get you to cultivate a continuous mindfulness. A continuous mindfulness during the course of the day, during your dreams, and a mindfulness that will have a continuity through the whole cycle of day and night, including dreamless sleep. If you cultivate this continuous mindfulness, you will begin to see the impermanence of the world of things, of objects. And the more impermanent, the more ephemeral they appear to you, and the more there's a sense of this constancy of consciousness, the more the things and the objects become symbols, transparent representations of the consciousness itself that's viewing them. The more divine, the more holy, the more sacred the world appears to you. But it's only when all this content vanishes, that all confusion vanishes, and you see what is left is God. And one of the prime opportunities to realize this is in dreamless sleep, by being lucid. Another one, which is perhaps the most cultivated in spiritual traditions, is samadhi. And the whole objective of meditation from the point of view of achieving samadhi is precisely to empty consciousness of any content. To transcend all the contents of consciousness. And in the East, there are all sorts of very detailed, refined techniques to achieve this. Patanjali's uh, Yoga Sutras, for instance, is one of the classic works in this. And slowly but surely, by withdrawing 
awareness from the outer senses by focusing it single-pointedly at first on some object, all other objects disappear, and finally surrendering that object. You've reached exactly that state that you experience every night, but now you've reached it lucidly. It's not just in the East, by the way. Read The Cloud of Unknowing by an anonymous Christian mystic. The whole method is that you take a one word, God or love, and you concentrate on that word. And whatever else arises, you reject is not God. As he puts it, you use this word to put a cloud of forgetting between yourself and the world, the contents of consciousness. You forget them. They disappear. And you enter the cloud of unknowing, because there's no objects in that cloud to know. The state of dreamless sleep, of samadhi, is not itself the be-all and end-all of a spiritual path. The point is, in that rarefied state, the opportunity to realize this consciousness that has no attributes, that is the eternal ground of all that arises, is very, very high. There's still no guarantee, but there's no other distractions. It doesn't mean that nothing else will ever arise. It doesn't mean you're going to go off into some uh, float away on the cloud of unknowing and never come back. It's just a particular time when the opportunity for gnosis is extraordinarily high. So it's a state that's cultivated. A third one is death. This is why preparation for death becomes a prime consideration on a spiritual path. In Tibetan Buddhism, it's described that at the time of your death, nature really is cooperating with you as a spiritual seeker. Because nature is stripping you away of all the contents of consciousness. Your body goes, your thoughts go, your feeling goes. It all starts to dissolve away. If you can have a conscious death, as it's put, you remain conscious and all this dissolves away. And what's left is consciousness. It can be experienced, if we put the word experience in quotes, and in that experience, you can have a realization, a gnosis of this truth that sets you free. And what does it set you free from? It sets you free from all the delusions you have about the nature of form. It doesn't wipe out form in the sense of being a, a blank. It makes form utterly transparent. It's to see that form and consciousness are indistinguishable. That all this talk of a transcendent and imminent God itself is a distinction that does not hold. That form is nothing but consciousness. And that this consciousness is eternal. And eternal doesn't go on and on forever in time. Eternal means that it transcends time and has nothing to do with time. Time itself is a form of consciousness. And to be free of that delusion that any of this is anything but consciousness, but Brahman, but the Absolute, is also to be free of the delusion that you are anything but this.
And to be free of the delusion that you are anything but this is to be free of the delusion that there's death. Is to be free of the delusion that there is actually anyone to suffer. So the truth that makes you free is the truth that frees you from suffering and death. Or as the Christians like to say, sin. Well, suffering and death is the wages of sin. This is the end point of a spiritual path, which when it's arrived at is not an end point anywhere. It's not a point anywhere. So all these descriptions that I read you earlier apply to. This is why in Hinduism, to come back to our original example of this idea of the three realms, symbolized by the three letters of Om, the gross realm, the subtle realm, and the transcendent realm, is not complete. And they talk about a fourth state, Turiya, which encompasses those three states. Because as long as we see the world in this stepladder form, which is indispensable on a spiritual path, we're still stuck in form. But to see that this form itself is contained in that which has no form, Turiya, is the ultimate realization. So we cannot separate, in the end, consciousness in form from consciousness without form. In a relative sense, we can and we do because it's useful for the spiritual path. But for any of you, ultimately to understand this paradox, you yourself must walk this path. You yourself must make use of these teachings. You yourself must learn to distinguish the rungs and the ladder. And you yourself must climb. Any questions or comments? Could the state of consciousness that you described as the, the oneness with God, is, could that be equated with, with feeling, or is feeling still in the same realm as thought and experience? Catherine of Genoa, at a certain high stage on her path, prayed to God to relieve her of these sweet spiritual feelings of love even because they tended to distract her from the God without attributes God alone a feeling is a form, a subtle form it's a form, it comes and goes it passes and you have wonderful ecstatic rapturous feelings and part of attention is focused on them so at a certain point on the spiritual path they become an obstacle. <clears throat> For most of the spiritual path, they are help because they draw you. They draw you uh, away from lower attachments. Once you have spiritual feelings and experiences, then ordinary mundane pleasures and stuff, you know, start to lose their taste. It's not that they necessarily even lose their taste, but they're in a new perspective suddenly. Do you know? If you had a very pretty... Uh, glass bead. It's very pretty, you know what I mean? I put it down here, we can all admire it. Then I surround it with rubies and diamonds and emeralds. 
And suddenly, it's not that the glass bead has changed at all, that nothing's happened to the glass bead, but suddenly in relation to these other things, it's not so attractive. This is the use of spiritual experiences. They also convince you that the teachings are true. You read about all this stuff, and then you have an experience like that. This is what transforms, in a relative sense, faith into knowledge. You, you need faith to begin with, but the more you go along, the less you have faith. Now you have your own experience, your own insights, your own feelings, you know. But, as I said, there comes a point where even that then becomes an obstacle. Even that becomes a distraction from a state where nothing arises in consciousness. So in this ultimate state of consciousness, there's nothing that we could describe or use words for that might be a feeling or anything in the body or in the... Um... You, uh, you shouldn't, but we do. And the words that are used in the positive sense are things like radiance, light, mm -hmm. ecstasy, rapture. But you have to cease to imagine a, an ecstasy or a rapture or a radiance that comes and goes. Even these words are nothing but strange attractors to get you there. They're not really true. But let me say this to be helpful. That sense of radiance that you might get just in a ordinary experience walking along a beach at sunset, of this beauty, of this uh, sense that there's something divine in all this that's arising. That is a light that draws you. The use of it is that it draws you. And you could describe it as a spiritual path becoming more and more intense. And so uh, Plato said it very well. His, uh, he took beauty as a spiritual practice. And the first thing you do is learn to appreciate the beauty in concrete form. The beauty of sculptures and art and so forth, you know. The beauty of the human body. Then you learn to appreciate the beauty of a soul. The beauty of virtue. The beauty of how someone behaves and who they, what we would call in our culture, really are. And beyond that, you go to higher and higher, more abstract not intellectually abstract, but that have less concrete forms of beauty, until finally you get to that beauty itself. Beauty without form, you see. So the, the light, the beauty, the joy in those experiences is what you want to follow and not get stuck on the experience or the conditions that created the experience. Is that helpful? One of the things just came to mind when this, let's say this radiance um, does happen, what is the best um, way to be with it? Just to notice it or to... It's not the best way to be with it. You are with it. Stop trying to cling to it. Stop trying to seize it. Stop trying to do anything. Our tendency is always to do. And at this, you want to stop doing. I'll tell you a very concrete experience that happened to me in meditation when I was studying with this Tibetan meditation teacher. And I'd heard about uh, clarity experience. It's a common experience in a certain stage in meditation where no thought arises. doesn't mean that nothing's arising conscious, but no thought arises. And I was sitting there meditating, and sure enough, all thought ceased, just of its own. You can't make it cease, but it'll happen. Just all thought ceases. 
And the mind just gets like a, just a beautiful, clear mirror. And after a beat or two went by, I thought, oh, this is a clarity experience, which of course is a thought, which is of course the end of the clarity experience, right? You see what I mean? So it's not a question of what you can do. It's what you can stop doing. And the more you surrender to it, the more intense it becomes. The more you let go. Stop trying to grasp it or claim it for yourself or hang on to it. The more you do the opposite of that, just surrender, just let go. For you using the image of light, the more intense it becomes. The more you start trying to say, oh, this is it, and grab it, it'll start to fade. So even to notice it or label it is, um, is this what you're saying? You're still trying to do something with it. You will, of course, notice it, and you will, of course, label it <laughs> until you get the, the idea that it's not necessary to notice it or label it. God does not need you to notice him or label him or her. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? All right, let's call the formal part of the morning uh, over. You're welcome to stay and have some tea and check out the